Good morning. So, uh, how many of you know that there's a special birthday this year? Somebody turns 400. Who is it? You know? Bruce? No, that's a good... I'm not going to say good guess, because that could get in a lot of trouble. Shakespeare. William Shakespeare, if he were alive, would turn 400 this year. Um, what's amazing is he only lived 52 years, and there are so many quotes that are attributed to him. What's even more amazing is that they exhumed his body this year for scientific research and discovered that he didn't have a head. That's true. His skull was missing. So that's quite an accomplishment when you think about it, without even a head. They, they actually, the, the problem was they said there was a rumor that they were trying to steal his head, and apparently they did. They took off with the skull. So don't be too smart, because somebody might go after your head. So, but besides that, his quotes are interesting. One of them that we use a lot is something's fishy. You know, we say something's fishy in Denmark, but that's not really the exact quote. Does anybody remember the quote from Hamlet? All of you are big Hamlet people. It came from Hamlet, and he said, something is rotten in the state of Denmark. And what he's talking about is he's saying that the, it, 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 the, the reason the fish comes in is the language would be used for a fish, that a fish is rotten from head to tail. And that's what he's saying, is that the government has become rotten from head to tail. And he says something very suspicious is going on in the government here. And so we've come to just say something's fishy in Denmark, or something's fishy, or something suspicious. And today we're going to talk about how something is fishy in Nineveh as we continue our study in the life of Jonah, which we call God's love for the lost. And what would be fishy in Nineveh? I mean, it's 300 miles from the Mediterranean Sea. There's not a lot of fish there. But there's something very suspicious that happens. And what's suspicious is that we see God's love for the lost demonstrated there. And it's not just his love for the lost, but more specifically, it's his love for his enemies. And so it's, a, it, it's very fascinating. We'll see things kind of turn around the other way. We'll see the fish get healed, so to speak, as they decide to follow in the right direction. So we're going to ask that question, what's fishy in Nineveh, and we're going to read about it today in Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. It says, then the word of the Lord, and remember when the Lord is capitalized, all letters, it should rightfully be read Yahweh. It's God's personal, intimate, covenantal name, which means literally the great I am. So then the word of Yahweh came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word Yahweh of Yahweh and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days. On the first day, Jonah started into the city. He proclaimed, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw that what they did, we saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. 
So what's fishy in Nineveh? The first thing that's kind of fishy in Nineveh is a fishy man comes to town in verses 1 through the beginning of verse 3. Uh, the word of Yahweh in Hebrew, it literally reads, the word became, Yahweh's word became or came to or became part of, in a sense, Jonah. So God, for the second time, sort of imprints on his mind, on his conscience, that he has a special mission for him to do. And the mission is to go to Nineveh. And let's understand that no, no pastor had ever been asked to actually leave Israel and go to another country and prophesy there. He was a prominent prophet. So this seems like the time of his lifetime, the, the most important task he's ever been asked to do. And what does he do? He runs and he goes the other direction. He doesn't want the assignment. He jumps on a ship and he heads out to sea and God goes after him. He brings a storm and the sailors throw him overboard and what happens after that? He jump, drops in the water and who saves him? A whale or a big fish? Joey did a great job talking about that last week. So I'm not going to go into a lot of detail, but he described all the details for us, and you can listen to that if you want to. But suffice it to say that the whale didn't like his taste and spit him up onto land. And like Joey said, a lot of people say that he didn't really repent, but yet repentance is when you turn and go the other direction. So he did. And he had like 300 miles at least to cover. That took months. It wasn't an emotional whim. This guy was for real, so he started going in the right direction. But what's interesting is we get kind of hints that his, there's something wrong with his attitude here. He doesn't really seem effusive about it, to say the least. And when we read the last chapter, we find out that he was very reluctant and he was pouty. He was grumpy. He didn't want to do what he was being called to do. And that in itself is, is pretty fishy and suspicious. Why is that? Well, when we find out a little bit about Nineveh, we can see why. The Ninevites were perhaps the most warlike and barbaric people of ancient history. In those days, they didn't have a written code of conduct in warfare, but it was understood that you didn't cross certain lines. The Ninevites, and they represent Assyria, the empire of Assyria, they were a prominent city in Assyria, they crossed those lines. They were brutal. They were mean. They would torture their victims. They would, they would take a hook and put it in the nose of the people that they conquered and pull them around on it. Later, out of this came nose rings. No, that's not, that's not true. <laughs> the first part is true, but strike the second part. But they would do that. They were just, they were, they were mean and vicious. They, Nahum, one of the prophets, writes a whole book on how horrible Assyria is. He said, all this warlike stuff about them. He also says they were into witchcraft and prostitution and commercial exploitation. They were bad people. What's more is they had revitalized themselves and were becoming powerful again. And he understands that if they become powerful, they will fulfill the prophecies of his contemporary prophets, Amos and, uh, and Hosea, who are saying that he's going to, God is going to punish Israel because they were sinful. You understand where he's coming from now? Jonah doesn't want to be the one who goes in to these horrible people, his life probably endangered, but even still, that they would turn against his own people. And he says that in the next chapter. He'll actually say, I knew God would be compassionate, and if I talk to them, they'll turn, and then they'll turn around, and they'll destroy Israel. 
which, by the way, they did about 20 years later. He knew what was going on, and he didn't want to do it. And there are two main conflicts, and we talked about this the very first week, and they keep popping up in Jonah. And the first one is the conflict between God's love for Israel and God's love for the lost. God loves Israel, but God also loves the lost. God loves followers of Christ, but he also loves the lost. And sometimes that means that the lost are really, truly his enemies, aren't they? Perhaps the most key passage that we have that ties into today's passage, if we go to the Old New Testament, is what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. In chapter 5 of Matthew, verse 43, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And we know we aren't perfect until heaven, but we should be perfecting ourselves. And it's interesting that of all the statements, he chooses this one to say you ought to be perfect because... That's perfection when you get to the point where you can love your enemies, right? Only God can help us to do that. And he understood that, and he, he didn't like it. It made him uncomfortable. Let's put the, this into a modern perspective for us. We talk a lot about immigration, and I'm not going to take any sides on this. I'm not a politician, and this is not a situation ethics class. But what if? What if it was God's will that we open all of our borders to whoever came in? And we knew in advance that hundreds of believers would be killed because we did that. But in the process, thousands upon thousands of people would turn and follow Jesus Christ as they saw our love and our sacrifice. Does that make you uncomfortable? When you do the math, what you figure out is if they're true believers, nobody dies for eternity. They all go to heaven. Sometimes it doesn't make sense to us, but God is thinking in a very different way than we think. He sees things from a spiritual perspective and he takes in the whole. And his goal is to get people into heaven. And so that kind of throws us for a loop, doesn't it? Jonah is grumpy besides. And I think um, there's one other thing we see that Jonah, is, what happens when, that's the first one, what happens when our will conflicts with God's will? Well, Jonah becomes grumpy. Uh, but God's will is always best. And so what I would say is this. When you say, I don't, but I don't want to do that. I don't want to love my enemies. Understand that God knows what's best. And when we look back in history, we can see that his plan was best all along. But we don't only see it when we're in the middle of it, do we? Don't fight him. Because you won't win. He's always going to win that battle. And so submit to him and go for the ride and find joy even in the hardships. Too bad that Jonah wasn't more like Gladys Staines. You heard the story of Graham and Gladys Staines? Followers of Jesus Christ, they left Australia to minister in India to lepers. And one day Graham 
took his two little boys, ages 10 and 7, Philip and Timothy, with him on a trip for ministry. And on his way back, they didn't have a place to stay, so they laid down and they fell asleep in their station wagon in Odisha, India. And some activists came around and decided they didn't want them. And they burned them to death in their car. 22nd of January, 1999. I remember when I first heard the shocking news. What do you do with something that horrible? I'll tell you what Gladys did. She chose to forgive them. And she and her daughter Esther chose to stay and minister to the lepers in India, to her enemies, the people that had killed her loved ones. By 2004, Christianity Today stated that they, she was the most well-known Christian in all of India, aside from Mother Teresa. The next year, in 2005, she won a government award giving her money for all that she had done. She used that money to transform her leper house into a hospital. Last November, just a few months ago, she was awarded the Mother Teresa uh, Memorial Award for Social Justice and recognized for all that she had done. And in her acceptance speech, she said, I just thank God because I could not have done this without him. That's the kind of attitude we need to aspire to rather than the attitude that we see in Jonah. Jonah is an example of what we don't want in our approach to others. Now, there's something else that's fishy that happens. Jonah actually gives these guys a chance to turn around, and that is that um, Nineveh is called to repentance in verses, the last part of verse 3 and verse 4. Now, it says that Nineveh was a very important city, and I'll let you in on a secret. If you read this in Hebrew, it just says it was a great city. But it keeps saying that Nineveh was a great city, and I think because it says Nineveh was a great city so many times, the translators say, change it this time, it was a very important city. Uh, but it was a very important city. It was perhaps the most prominent city of all of it, uh, Syria. It was later to be the capital of Assyria, and it was a big city. If we go to the next chapter in verse 11, it says 120,000 people lived there. That was a lot during those days for a great city. The great city of Samaria, which was the capital at that time of, of the northern kingdom of Israel, was only 30,000 people. Let's put it this way. The great city of Oakdale is only about 20,000. Now, archaeologists have excavated the area and feel that it was possibly much larger than this. And they actually believe that there were three other cities that were suburbs and together made up a metropolis that they called the Assyrian Triangle. And so it was a very populous area. And that's why it took him three days to get around it. But there's a lot of symbolism in what's said here. Some people say it doesn't seem like he said very much. I have a feeling he said more than this. This is just a synopsis and gives a sign of symbolism of what he said. But here's one symbolism. Three days. Remember the three days of salvation that we've been talking about? Three days of salvation, you've got two options. Either you turn to God and you have salvation, or you turn to him and you have destruction. So the three days of walking around is symbolic of three days to make up your decision, which way you're going to go. And then the 40 days, 40 days and nights, what would you normally think of? 40 days and nights in a what? In an ark, right? The Jewish people would think immediately, 40 days and nights in the ark. And in fact, I wonder if the Assyrians might too, because the story of the ark is not just in the Bible. We have extra biblical accounts that there was, this event really took place. And so when they heard this, 
it was this idea that if you go in the ark, you're blessed, and if you stay out of the ark, you drown. See the symbolism there? And then how do you work through this? 40 days and nights, Moses prayed. And so maybe they should pray for 40 days and nights. And, you know, maybe they should start getting serious about what they believe in. So this all kind of ties in and may have been part of the message that he gives them at the time. Now, here's a question that I have. Did they know they needed to repent? Did they know that they were sinful? What do you think? Or do you think he had to kind of wake them up and tell them? I think... Personally, I think they knew. I think people know when they're in sin. They may lie to themselves, but in their conscience, they know. I'll tell you how I know this. Because that's what I do, right? When I do something that I shouldn't do, I will deny it sometimes. And I will even justify it. And it'll just keep eating away at my conscience. And God will keep bringing events into my life that all seem to tie into that topic. Everywhere I go, everything I see, it reminds me of what I did. And the same thing, by the way, was happening to Nineveh. If we go back historically, what we find is that Nineveh had several droughts, several epidemics. They had a, solar, a total solar eclipse. They had political problems. They had war problems all during this time. They were aware of the fact that things were not going right. That, that doesn't mean that they would turn to God. Some people never do. You can hit some people over the head with a two-by-four, and they don't pay attention. They just get harder and harder and harder. But they got the information from God. They knew they were guilty, just like we know we're guilty when we're doing the wrong thing. If we're honest with ourselves, and if we really look at ourselves honestly. You ever take that DISC test? Anybody ever take the DISC test? going around nobody here. So it tells you, it helps you understand who you are. So none of you know that. Um, <laughs> no, it's interesting though, in that test, they try to help you understand what your gifts and abilities are and what you're good at and what you do and so forth. And one of the things they do is they have a category where it says, this is who you are, how you see yourself, and this is how others see you. Because what's very interesting is that we don't see ourselves the way other people see us. Therefore, we don't really fear ourselves for who we are. It's changed my whole perspective. I used to think of myself as tall, dark, handsome, and debonair. <laughs> now I don't care anymore, right? But it, it really is enlightening when you think of it from the perspective of how does God really see you? Who's the real you? Are you willing to face your weaknesses? Are you willing to pray about them? Are you willing to, to seek his grace? In, you're never going to be perfect, but to grow as a person. Are you willing to face your sin? This same message that Jonah is speaking, he could have held up a mirror the whole time because he needed to hear it himself as an individual. But sometimes we need to hear it in groups. What happens is if you have people that are sinful and they justify it and they get other people that are sinful and with the same problems and they both justify it and they both start you know, helping each other out with this, and next thing you know, they have a group of people, and then they have a gang, and then they have a movement, and then it becomes a culture, right? And it becomes part of that nation or that people. It's what they're known for. That's why on Friday, I don't know if anybody saw this. I, I just read about it, but they had the hearing, uh, the court hearings on Renhold, uh, Renhold Hanning. Did you hear about that? Renhold Hanning is 94 years of age. He looks like a sweet little grandpa. 
He was a soldier during World War II, and he served as a guard at Auschwitz, the notorious Jewish um, concentration camp. And he shared how hard it's been all these years to hold all that pain within him. But he just didn't want to admit what he knew he'd seen. It's so easy, it just becomes part of your culture and you deny it. And, and let me tell you this, it's very rare if ever that anybody's ever the bad guy. You ever notice that? We're always the good guy. And that's why it's so important that we really look at ourselves and even our country, honestly, if we're going to make changes for good. Now, he goes on, and the next thing he says is, is God saves Israel's uh, most dangerous enemy. And, and he goes in here, and these people, I mean, the whole thing is suspicious. It's just amazing. In fact, some people believe that this book could not even be historical because this is one of the great miracles in the Bible, if you look at it from that perspective, that such an evil people should turn around. But that's exactly what it says happened. The most powerful uh, sentence in the whole passage is verse 5 where it says the Ninevites believed God. The Ninevites, the most horrible, evil people of their age, believed God. Some say, well, yeah, they believed, they intellectually believed that there must be a God. They intellectually believed that he was the superior God of all their polytheistic gods. But, but I'm inclined to believe that this was divine grace. That there was no right for them to ever get to heaven. But God opened the door supernaturally. it's amazing because what they say when they say believe, the word trust, it's the same language that's used in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, where it says, Abram believed Yahweh and he credited it to him as righteousness. That's how Abraham came into a relationship with God. He believed him. He began to trust him. He began to interact with him. These guys, you know, if they followed what Jonah was saying, they would be instructed that one day a Messiah was going to come to save them, and they believed in that. The Messiah has now come, and we look back. Do you believe in the Messiah who's come? You see what's happening? I believe that they made a sincere decision, not based on what they did, but what we saw in the last chapter where it says that salvation comes from Yahweh. It doesn't come from you or me. It comes from him. He will save who he will save. He opens the door for these people and gives them an opportunity to come into his kingdom. Isn't that incredible? And they respond. Now, I don't think all of them respond. It says all, but that's just general language. All means that all of them went through the motions. Some were followers. Some did it because they didn't want to get in trouble. They didn't want to get somebody putting a, uh, you know, a ring in their nose, you know, a hook in their nose. But they, but they all did it. But I, it, it sounds like a pretty large number of them, large percentage, were really sincere. And they changed things as a result. Isn't that an incredible uh, account that we have there? It's really amazing. Now, that can happen with us today, too. You, too, can come into a relationship with Jesus Christ. God's salvation is here, and it's available for you. But you begin by admitting that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. You believe that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave. And you choose to follow Christ and put your faith in him alone. Well, I'd love to have that conversation with any of you, if you haven't done that yet, if you're interested in doing that, when come and talk to me about that later. But I want to make just a couple other observations here that I think are interesting. Um, first of all is the fast. Uh, a fast 
meant that you take a period of time to abstain from something, and it was usually food. And in those days, when you would fast, you would also put on sackcloth. And sackcloth was made from the most uncomfortable, coarsest cloth you could wear. It was like, well, it was usually goat's hair. And the people that would wear it were poor people, slaves, and prisoners, and sometimes prophets who were trying to identify with them or trying to identify with those who were um, in sin. And the others that would wear it are those who were in mourning. Mourning because something tragic had happened in your life. Mourning because you were really sad about things and you wanted to make changes in your life. And you would wear very little of it. You wouldn't wear very much, just what was decent. And you would get down in the dirt and you would you know, recognize how bad things really were. That was part of their culture and is what they did. And so they really you know, got, that, maybe that's where they get the, the term, got down and dirty. I don't know, but that's what happened. They got down and dirty, and, um, and then, you know, it says from greatest to least, and it came to him. It's amazing that all the different, you know, like when we have demonstrations, you notice that it's always the same group, but in this case, all different age groups, all different backgrounds, everybody got together on it, and it sounds like it didn't start with the king, but it, like most great movements, we always think if we elect, a, you know, a really godly, charismatic, dynamic, moral leader, you know, to our, we used to think this, um, you know, as our president, that's going to change the world. Well, we should, should still believe that. That makes a difference. But it isn't the person you elect that changes things. It starts with you. It's a grassroots movement. And the people got excited, and that got the king excited. And so he came off his throne, and he got down in the dirt with his people. Uh, it's an incredible story. And then he writes about them all fasting and all praying. And he even says that they're going to have the animals fast and put sackcloth on them. And that seems strange to us, but not as strange as it was in the Old Testament. If you go back to the first chapter of Genesis and creation, you see this incredible connection between God and animals. And the farther we get from Eden, the more disconnected we get. And then you go to some place like Isaiah 65, and we're in heaven, and God and, and animals and people are interacting again and are connected. And so they understood the connection with animals and that that was part of them, that they were to, to be over these animals, and that was part of who they were, and they had this connection with them, which is kind of an interesting side note. But the other thing is they take a fast, and the fast they take is a dry fast, no water. I wouldn't recommend it. It's something you really have to build up to if you're going to do. And some people shouldn't fast, period, because it, you know, it's not good for your health. But uh, <laughs> we got an amen on that one. Boy, that's <laughs> good. Everybody's excited. So turn, turn down. But, you know, but sometimes, you know, fasting can be a good thing. And so, you know, he gives, gives the example um, here of fasting. But we just need to be careful. One of the things that I've noticed that we are kind of confused with with fasting today and it, it kind of ties into our self-centered culture and, and times. When we fast today, the people that generally fast are people who want you to feel sorry for them. And they fast, and it's like, see what you're doing to me. You're making me so sad. I have to do this so that you'll change this law, so that you'll change the way you do things, because if you don't, I'm going to die, and wouldn't that be horrible, and I'm suffering, okay? That's kind of how we do it. In those days, it was the opposite. It was like, I am suffering because I've hurt you. I am suffering because I've hurt God. I feel bad for what I have done. 
Very different situation. Did you hear Tim Allen in his TV program, one of his characters was, was asked, if you had to choose a person to spend uh, an evening with, a you know, person in history, to go to dinner with a famous person in history, who would it be? He said, Gandhi. They asked him why. He said, there'd be a lot more food to eat. <laughs> right? Uh, and so, but it, that's what usually when we think of fasting, we think of somebody like that fasting. But it was, it was more than that. It was fasting because you felt bad for others. Now, the rest of it just talks about how they wanted to make changes. And what's remarkable is that they made the changes they said they were going to make. And that doesn't usually happen. I've been in a couple churches where they have repentance services because the church is obviously having some big problems. People are really concerned, and so they have a repentance service. And it's very emotional and very moving, and everybody's going to repent. And they go through the motions, and then nothing changes. And things often get worse. And they say, well, what's wrong? Two problems I've observed. One is they never seek to find out what their sin is. They don't really want to know. They don't talk to people and say, what is it that we're doing wrong? They just kind of, uh, it's, they, they pick something trivial and they go with it. And two, they don't have a plan of action on how they're going to change what they're doing wrong. See what I'm saying? This nation, they did that. They came face to face with their sin and they identified what the problems were and they said, let's turn from it and make some changes. And they did. But what's most remarkable about this passage is even with that, God forgave them. It is a testimony of how incredible the God of the universe is and how much he loves everybody who has ever existed and how he extends himself to us. That our God is a God who loves the unlovable, he loves his enemies, he forgives the unforgivable. Now, with that as kind of our background, I think of another passage, if, if, it, if we're going to be sincere in asking for forgiveness, a great passage is uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, that says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. It needs to be godly. If it's focused in God and we're sorrowful and we want to make changes, then it happens, and then it's very powerful. Okay, what's fishy about us? One of the things that should be most fishy or suspicious about our lives is we should be different than other people. We should be people that love the lost and even people who love our enemies. That should be true of us. And I see that happening here. You know, we see that uh, Jonah is called and we are called to love the lost and we're to love our enemies joyfully. We're to love our enemies in a sense with a joyful attitude. We're to have an attitude of gratitude. You do not get to choose your circumstances in life. But you have a chance, you have a choice to choose to follow the one who made you and rejoice in him and find happiness and joy in him. Even in hard times. Remember in, in Acts chapter 15 where Paul and Silas are put in prison and they're singing. We should be happy people. My, uh, this guy Randy, well, a friend of mine actually, Randy Elkhorn wrote this book, Happiness. It's a new book that he has out. It's 400 pages all on being happy. Um, yeah, I guess getting a little, I wasn't so happy as I was trying to get through all of it. There's a lot of material here. No, but it's good. It's good stuff. And, and he has a quote here. In fact, Mitch was mentioning this just the other day. A great quote by C.S. Lewis that gives us a kind of a perspective on happiness. Lewis says this, 
If there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly to hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, I submit that this notion is no part of the Christian faith. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nation of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. We should be the most joyful people on earth. We should be rejoicing in God under all circumstances. Now, the second thing is that we should love our enemies mournfully. We should be mourners of our sins. That's fishy. That's unusual. But we should be people that get to, you know, get a grip on that. One of the most painful things that I try to do daily is I try to spend time uh, where I really focus on what I might be doing wrong and really try to get before God and say, God, convict me. (laughs) Help me to know what I, I need to work through. It's very painful, but I find out of that I have a sense of relief and joy that carries me the rest of the day. And how much more to do that for in an extended period, a time of fasting? The Bible doesn't say all the times when we should fast and all that and how often. Uh, I find that I fast usually when I'm not hungry because I'm sad. Or maybe because I'm not hungry and I'm eating too much. It can go both ways. And sometimes it's just because others want to fast over something that's very important and I join them. So that's when you fast. That's when you pray. But understand that when we fast and pray, we don't need to put on sackcloth anymore. I got rid of mine. You know, neighbors were complaining. Um, Actually, it's such a different culture, right? But Jesus says in Matthew 6, we're not to draw attention to ourselves. So it's something you just do privately. If you've never done it before, I encourage you to. You don't have to do the whole day even. You know, you might have a big breakfast and take off lunch and dinner or do it reverse. Eat a big dinner and take off the morning. But just to spend some time where you focus on your sin and how you can grow and ask God to show you how, where are some areas that I can grow in and pray that he would reveal that to you and just tell him, I'm, you know, he already loves you and forgives you. You know, just, I just want to know so I can grow and be more like you. Help me to, I, and I give it to you. It's, it's gone. I just, I, I, I'm moving on, and it gives you a sense of relief, and it's a good thing to wrestle through. And likewise, we should do that for our country. And that's what they did here. Nineveh, you know, is America. By the way, there's a tremendous amount of similarities. I am sometimes frightened to think of what historians will say about the age that we live in in our country. And so it's an opportunity to turn back to God and, and get, things, get things right with him. I, uh, we were talking about this the other day. Clifton actually brought this up. He, he brought up this passage. And I remember, back. some of you may remember that when Ronald Reagan became president, he had the, this is what he had the Bible open to, and they made a lot of comments on it when he took the oath of office. He went to 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven, and will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. 
Now, some people rightfully point out that that was out of context. That was a promise to Israel, not to America. But isn't it interesting how God took care of Nineveh when they turned to him? It follows the principle of how great and gracious our God is. And so pray for it. You want to know how to pray for them? Read Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel 7, Daniel asks for God, you know, prays for Israel and for himself. Read that and then spend some time doing it. When do you do it? Hey, National Day of Prayer is this Thursday. Might be a good day to do it or just pick a day this week that works for you. But I encourage you to participate in that. And finally, we see that we should be fishers of men. We point our finger at Jonah and we say, how could he be so reluctant? And yet, when we think about it, Jonah had to go hundreds of miles to speak to hostile people. And most of us have friends, neighbors, teammates, people we work with, people that are in our lives all the time that aren't that hostile, and there's far less fear, and we're more reluctant to share the message that God has commanded us to share with them, to minister to them in love and to tell them about Jesus, um, you know, in an appropriate way and to invite them to church and get to know them and be their friends. It's something we really do need to do. And sometimes we're going to find some of those people occasionally. You know, we want to reach out to the ones we like, right? But sometimes we'll have people in our life that we don't like. Sometimes they might even be our enemies. You say, who are, who are my enemies? I was reading the other day this little girl back in the 60s. Um, she got to know this uh, prominent civil rights leader. And she told him, she said, my father is a racist. And you know what the civil rights leader said? He said, we're all racist. An interesting statement. We're all racist. We all think we're best, our family's best, our city's best, our team is best, our country's best, right? That's just how we're wired. And if people are different than us, different religion, different background, different color of skin, different interests sometimes even, right? All of a sudden, we don't no one want to be friends with them because it might be awkward. They're different than us. But God calls us to love our enemies. And let me remind you of this. We were once his enemies. But Paul says... In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11, he says, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know what Jesus did to you, his enemies? What he did when he faced enemies? He died on the cross for you. So with those thoughts in mind, I ask you the question, have you yet engaged your enemy in love? Join me in a word of prayer. Father, thank you. Thank you so much for the example of Jesus Christ, uh, the supreme example, and for examples of people that are just human, like Gladys Staines. Lord, we're overwhelmed by uh, love. You know, people always talk about love as the most important thing, but very few people talk about loving the people that have killed your loved ones, loving your enemies. Lord, pray that we could be those kinds of people. And uh, pray for anybody here that's not yet in your kingdom, that they could come into your kingdom even today, that they might know that kind of love. 
pray these things in your name. Amen. We want to uh, transition now to the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Supper is uh, just a powerful time, and it ties in a lot with what we're talking about today. We remember that in the last meal he took, in a section of that meal, Jesus broke it up and he reminded them and he told them, actually beforehand, that he was going to die on the cross for them. He was going to die for his enemies. That's what it's all about. And it's a time for us primarily to remember what he did for us and to keep focused and to keep oriented in our lives and in our walk with him. That's what God calls us to. Before we take it, there's a couple things we need to know. If you're not in a relationship with Jesus, then it's not for you to take it. Just to observe, listen, and ask questions and learn from it. But if you're in a relationship with him, if you've truly given your life to him, then it's a time for you first to confess your sins privately to him and make sure that your heart is right with him or not to participate. And it's okay not to participate. Sometimes it's, this is a time for you to meditate and think and pray. Um, but we want to give you an opportunity to participate. So we're going to have a time of silent confession, uh, repentance in your heart, cleansing of your heart, and I encourage you to do that. And after a little bit, we'll partake together. So will you join me in this silent time of prayer? And I'll close this in a little bit.